Within the depths of the strip mall of the damned lies a decrepit video store long since shuttered. Past the dusty shelves, empty safer spiders spinning their patient webs. Beyond the ancient batwing doors guarding the sepulcher where once were hidden the perverse and heretical, a secret society assembles to scrutinize those films which are rumored to drive viewers to madness and dissolution. Draw closer, dear listener. Let your trembling ears sup upon the eldritch knowledge of the Cinemania Society. We, the brethren of the Lens Hall, do convene to judge this offering of cinema worthy of our esteem. Let us all go as a judgment. Ah, cool. We're back from recess. Everyone feeling like their Cinemania is at levels they can handle? Good! Ah, let's get back to scrutinizing that 1956 science fiction classic, Forbidden Planet. Judgment! Let's let us move to judgment. Yeah, it's about time for some judgment around here. I haven't been exercising very good judgment lately. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, whoever picked this uh, film was not exercising good judgment, I think. Oh. Well, I don't know. I mean, there's there's a lot to be said for this film. As we've said before, the special effects, the visual style, it's yeah, let worth me, watching for that. Let's mention that visual style. Did anyone else notice that the insignia on all of the spacemen hats kind of looked like a sperm? I didn't need to notice that because I just knew you would. And did anyone else notice that all of their... Uh, neutron beam guns looked like marital aids of some variety. Oh. Come again? The, their guns looked uh. like vibrators. Okay. You know, I thought they looked more like Coke bottles. Looks of both. <laughs> you know, I, I thought as far as like phallic symbols in the movie goes, like the when they were setting up the radio and they had that giant, like that, that giant glass phallic thing with the big copper tubing inside of it. And they, like I was setting it up right at groin level, you know, and so it's taking up <laughs> half the screen. And this is film supposed to be built on Freudian psychology. And that was real obvious that they were like, hey, no, 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 that was giant definitely space dong. That was definitely a cigar right there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was a Klystron. That's an actual real piece of equipment, I believe. They might have. Yeah, added but is it usually held it. that way? <laughs> no, I mean, you don't normally wave it at Leslie Nielsen while pontificating wildly. No. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> also, talking about uh, special effects, this this movie truly is a masterclass on uh, forced perspective, especially with like some of when they're walking through uh, the scene with the nuclear uh, reactors. And uh, that's really actually a forced perspective of a glass painting, I think was what they did. They'd put it on the camera and then they would- Great map paintings. Yeah. And then they would, and then they would track. So it looks like the individuals are walking right next to the reactors, but really they're just walking in, I don't know, some sort of industrial complex. So you get the concrete and the railings, but all of that, uh, all of the nuclear reactors and stuff is drawn in. So, exact yeah, same I mean, technique so, that so, they used in Return of the Jedi. I mean, the, those mm-hmm. uh, matte paintings are always done mm-hmm. on glass, but that's the, the same force perspective techniques and stuff are all used in Return of the Jedi. Uh, yeah. It's, it, yeah. And like I said, it was masterclass on it. It is just beautiful. Yeah, and a I mean, lot of later films would definitely take visual cues from this. I mean, not only television, obviously with Star Trek, but the whole idea of uh, you know 
nuclear bunker filled with blinking lights and stuff. This basically invented a whole visual language for crazy science fiction for decades to come. True. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly the aesthetic is dated by our standards, but um, I mean, taking that into account, it holds up. It yes. still looks incredible. Like I, my jaw was on the floor when I was rewatching this with y'all. Like I was just, Wow. This this is why I always say that I love and can rewatch anything that has practical camera effects, you know, again and again, other than like, you know, something from the 1990s with CGI from the time, which just is so corny and cartoony looking. Yeah. You don't like a Misa face? <laughs> I oh. never liked a Yora face. <laughs> Me a punch of Yora face. I was curious <laughs> why... All of the underground stuff looked amazing, but there was nothing on the surface. Like the half of the built above ground, gone completely. The park below ground, perfect. How? <laughs> Science. Because, I mean, uh, obviously the Tempest, you've got a desert island. They obviously thought, hmm, desert island, desert planet, True. desert. Let's just make the whole thing a great big desert. We're so clever. And I mean, then George Lucas goes, hmm, deserts, huh? Oh, my God. I mean, true. Yeah. Uh, but also, when it comes to the, the science of the actual Altair, the star, or rather the seven-star system, um, the, the White Dwarf. So I have a subscription to White Dwarf. Oh, God. Uh -huh. Are we talking about the original actor inside Robbie again? <laughs> mm -mm. Mm -mm. Wow. Mm-mm. Sorry, you were, you were trying to school us on the actual astronomy. Uh, uh, <laughs> Let the science man I, speak. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> but yeah, no, this is, it's it's a really, it's it's interesting because also it's, it's very close to us, but the way that it's set up, it would burn away any sort of ozone layer. It's it's just, it's it's just funny because that's, that's what would give us a desert effect that would really kind of scorch the surface. But, but at about three times the distance, that uh, the Earth is to our sun, uh, you could form liquid water, but would you have an atmosphere? Eh, we'll see. I mean, if you really like ultraviolet rays, uh, incredibly uh, more powerful than our sun emits, then, I mean, be my guest, but uh, be sure to pack a lot of sunblock. <laughs> you don't think the Krails technology somehow made an atmosphere that Morbius and his daughter then later took advantage of? That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, for all that we see, the, the cool underground stuff, he talks about how they had mile-high towers of porcelain and steel. That would have been really nice to see. Absolutely. A porcelain tower. That's, uh, that's an interesting image. And they also would have, uh, they probably would have evolved underground. Um, sorry, when I say white dwarf, I mean white main sequence dwarf star, just to kind of put that in there. So it's not like super tiny. Uh, uh, I was I was going to correct you on that, but you correct. Yeah, me. I knew so, that. So yeah, <laughs> just so, so, just so. I was going to suggest that that this is uh, this is maybe a little suggestion that if you if you are privy to the sciences, these people clearly were in designing the film, then they you you could extrapolate that the Krell might actually have been highly melanistic, so in a highly mm. advanced society of dark skinned aliens. Mm -hmm. if they were living on the surface so that that's uh i don't know i feel like that that may be an oblique way uh that the folks were making sure that the science fiction was uh that it isn't always some lost white race thing these folks yeah that's also a very good point too but maybe it's, um, a, it's a reach but it seems to me that may be a consideration uh, 
I think you might be giving them a little credit there because yeah. let's talk about the script. Um, oh let's boy. talk about the attitudes <laughs> that these guys have. The the science is great. The visuals are great. Lots of effort made there. But when they open their mouths, the kind of stuff that comes out is not great. The attitudes, the, the assumption that just a woman being in space at all is bizarre. They are genuinely surprised when Morbius says, I, oh, I had a wife. They're like, why would you have a wife? Why would there be women around here anywhere? And the, the assumption that uh, if you have a, a young girl in the presence of these salty sea dogs of the stars, that they're just going to go wild. So she has to be pretty responsible and she has to watch out what she does and how she dresses in case she drives into paroxysms of manly fury. That stuff didn't hold up so well. So we're not no. going to be completely fondling the balls and slurping the rod on this film. But also, Jesus. like, it's like you, you have only men around and back in the day is like oh but gay bad like come on Jesus well fuck. yes <laughs> there there's no there's no discernible evidence at all of any kind of homosexuality taking place in any navy vessel ever ever never what do you mean? no no it's statistically likely you got a crew of i don't know 30 guys in space for years there's not one homosexual guy there yeah no. You know, this the, reminds me of when I was aboard the USS Midway. This is a ship that was um, being built during World War II. It was a, a Roosevelt-class aircraft carrier and served until the early 90s when it was decommissioned and became a museum ship in San Diego. Now, if you want to talk about, like, one of the most homoerotic paintings I have ever seen, period, you go into the engine room of the Midway, and there is, uh, they have this great big wall of, of copper valves, because the way the ship ran was on steam, and they had these, these great diesel turbines that would generate steam that would then be rerouted using this system of crank valves, and on the wall is a picture of, of a sailor standing but like his backside right little tight apple ass sailor in his cute little bell-bottom jeans tight nice. up you know like looks very tom of finland you know with his <laughs> hands up on the valves looking like it's very you know very much like he's almost on a rack you know it's it is <laughs> like i said it's very tom of finland and i was like well, yeah yeah there you go this you know is what the they navy always, guys you know what they always said about the submarine service is like 100 men go down in the sea, 50 couples come back up. Nice. There you go. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a film that really um, wears its heart on its sleeve in a weird way. I mean, yeah. oddly, the things that they thought would be bizarre, robots and crazy special effects and animated monsters, we kind of take that in our stride now. We've seen all that before. We're, we're fine with it. But the stuff that makes us pause and go, whoa, did they just do that? is the, the bits like with Leslie Nielsen saying, why you young lady, I order. And yes. the, whole, the whole idea of, um, of the bizarre sexual morals of these people. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting too, taking this back to the Shakespearean roots of uh, Caliban uh, being played as the id monster in this Caliban in a lot of productions of The Tempest, especially around that time. He was usually cast as a native or, or somebody who was of a non-white persuasion, mm. you know, and all it really says in The Tempest is that he is monstrous in some way. So these are the societal takes on this character. 
mm-hmm. and of indigenous people of the time. All right, guys, chill out, please. I guess we're going to. Uh, I guess we're going to break. All right. We're back. We're feeling okay. Everyone's good. All good. Cool. Um, let's get back into this 1956 science fiction movie, Forbidden Planet. Well, we've had uh, a lot of fun riffing on this film, but like I do always say, past is prologue, and we're going to have to render judgments. But speaking of past, though, like I did, I did a bunch of reading up on this, and like we can't, we can't look at this film without acknowledging how much modern science fiction owes a debt to it. So, you know, uh, when when we were first talking about this before we rolled, and I pointed it out to to Brother Andre about how this film is the inspiration for Star Trek. Like Star Trek would not exist for it, you know, and it is. Uh, the visual language it establishes really um, goes forward and you can still see elements of it almost vestigially in modern science fiction. Um, but what this was, was like sort of the culmination of a whole bunch of other science fiction that had begun to rise after World War II up to this point. You had this whole 10 year period where people were like thinking about like, okay, we just fought this major technological war. We had people who were doing stuff in submarines underwater and we had these great big planes. And so like the visual language of the, of the 1950s was just sort of an extrapolation of the looks of war machines from World War II. It kind of makes sense for these folks to, to look like they were from um, you know, the 1950s Navy, because that's what they had the idea of. And that's what was being depicted in the comics of the era. So like when this movie came out, EC Comics had just been canceled. So as much as the right wing likes to scream about cancel culture, all, all of the ideas of science fiction that, that, that were trying to be brought up and discussed when people were saying like, oh, you know, like modern sci-fi is woke and, and this is all like, this is all a bunch of, you know, modern liberals trying to force their modern values on people. No, bullshit. This has been the heart of science fiction since Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein in 18, what, 1819? Like she, she pioneered science fiction. And you can find this as like these, these challenging subjects that get brought up and discussed from the very fucking beginning. And a lot of this stuff was being talked about in the 50s in EC Comics, weird science, weird fantasy. You know, they had similar stories that came up in the horror trilogy of, of Tales from the Crypt, Vault of Horror, and Haunt of Fear. But all these comic books were, were targeted by moralists and people who were talking about that this was subversive and would cause the youth to question this, you know, the values of America and that this stuff needed to be taken away off the shelves. You know, and so we're seeing a lot of the same, you know, a very similar kind of push that we saw um, in the Reagan era against music. They hauled Frank Zappa and Dee Snyder in front of uh, the Senate and shook their fingers at them. You know, like we, we saw this, these same movements. We saw the same thing happen. Like you go back and you read um, the very first issue of Weird Science, or actually one of the very first issues of Weird Science. They have an absolutely scathing indictment of bigotry, but set in like the 2200s. You know, you see this like like so, repeatedly setting the stage for stuff like Star Trek. In, for- intellectual thought. So what you're saying is science fiction has always been a woke culture ass wagon. So, you know. Well, I mean, I mean, yes, I think that this movie, you can see it here very clearly. 
um, because of the reaction, I think in mainstream science fiction, it took a big ass step backwards because of the reactionary uh, yeah. folk coming at it. Um, yeah. You know, it, it did. Like you can see it in a lot of science fiction in the 50s. It feels very unwoke. And, and like even by the standards of like the 80s. It, um, it turned into well, like a bunch were... of monsters, like, you know, yeah. taking the woman and. Oh, well, that's well, that's the thing. They, women, they, they, you know? they sucked a lot of the innovation out of the genre to make it more about like, like, like you're saying that it was like, it's just another way of doing monster movies and adventure movies where the action man is the hero and he's going to save the woman from the thing, except they have laser guns. Right. Well, like. But and they recovered, and I think Star Trek is one of the ways that it really recovered. It did absolutely, yeah. No, you nailed it. Then you have to, you know, that's that's one actually one of the other reasons why Star Trek was successful was because you had a woman entrepreneur in the form of Lucille Ball taking a gamble on it, and saying, "No, fuck you, I'm going to make this show because I think it has meaning. I think it's important." Because the and one of the, I think one of the reasons why they were struggling uh, to to tell these kind of stories, and you can see them coming real close and trying real hard in Forbidden Planet to tell like uh, to to tell some of these stories that they, they can't because they're fighting against two major things: one, finances, because they can only be as liberal as the conservative financiers of Hollywood, and two, they're fighting against the Hayes Code. There's certain things where they're not allowed to imply that even the implication of equality among the races. Yeah, you know, anything it, licentious, anything that, that mm -hmm. challenges what was called the, the natural law. Yeah, and, and the, part the, of that the, natural law was white supremacy. Uh, yeah, you know, white yeah. male so you, supremacy. There were there were literal rules in place that this is the society we have. We really like this society, and we want all films everywhere to support that society and not do anything to challenge it. And it was it was written down in a little code that you could pick up and leaf through, and all films had to obey the Hayes Code. Yeah, yeah, and you can really see the shift most, I think. And I'm not the biggest Trekkie, so I'm curious what uh, some of our bigger Trekkies think of this. Is like in the original series, where in the first couple of seasons, Kirk macking on anything that moves is like, ha yeah, boy. And then gradually it actually shifts a little bit to the occasional like, <laughs> look at him, he's a tool. I'll be kind of honest when it comes to the, the lore of Star Trek, Kirk he don't get me wrong like he he is 100 uh a ladies man but it's not as pronounced as a lot of people really make it out to be um he's also very much rash decision maker definitely a little bit less of a mm -hmm. i i have a particularly interesting rabbit hole when it comes to uh how fascist picard is and that's why i don't <laughs> particularly like picard do you mean the character or the tv series i think he means oh, the, the, character. the character the character himself yeah. and he, he does get better i just when it comes to federation politics i have a lot to say but that's not the podcast for that well that's uh, why everybody knows that cisco is the best captain well, it's but. uh it's, it's an <laughs> oh. interesting comparison to make in terms of the two captains there of Kirk and Leslie Nielsen, because Kirk yeah. is officially a diplomat, but is shown to be a bit of a horn dog. Leslie yeah. Nielsen is, uh, is is acting as a diplomat and a scientist, but everyone talks about how much of an incredible horn dog he is. They can't show it, 
But the way they describe him, all the other crew members say, what? oh, yeah, he goes from port to port. He Women are not no, safe I, around. I thought well, no. that was, no, I thought that was the lieutenant. Like, he's got this woman and he sees that she's interested in the captain. So he's negging like, oh, you don't want to be with this guy. This guy's been with like every woman in the uh, in the yeah. system here. And yeah, they made like, that whole thing about women wouldn't be safe around him. Yeah, yeah right. no, I no, thought no. that was the lieutenant. Psychological just, projection? Yeah, I thought that was... <laughs> I thought that was the lieutenant, like saying, trying to like be like, no, yeah, pay definitely the lieutenant. I'm the safe so, yeah. guy who actually, and he was actually the horn dog that you didn't. Yeah, and she wasn't safe around because it, it um, is Leslie Nielsen who like turns his back when she's coming out of the pool, and he's much more like patronizing, right? He's not. Yeah. He's he's less about like, yeah, I want to get with you, and more like, you got to stop flashing your ankles around my men. Yeah, they're all gonna like the bust a nut. It goes after her at the end. But, yeah, yeah, I mean, they oh, yeah. want to they want to portray him as a womanizing Kirk-esque captain, but obviously they can't. But they they if you read the character as he, you know, in terms of his actions and in terms of how people address him, they all perceive him to be basically Captain Kirk. They just can't show any of that. Mm-hmm. I don't know about that. I think given the, the 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 psychological themes, it may be more projection. I think Andrea has actually uh, has, has a uh, some some significant notes on this, uh, so I'd like to give her some chance to talk to yeah. on this topic. Floor is yours, Professor. <laughs> well, there's a lot of Freudian psychology in this whole film, with the id, the unconscious, irrational desire for pleasure or aggression that the doctor Morbius is unconsciously unleashing on the crew because they're all kissing his daughter. (laughs) Uh, But then there's also defense mechanisms that you see in Freudian psychology, like projection. You might hate someone, but since it's not good to hate people, you think they hate you. So they say that this guy is bad because he's, really sex crazy but actually it's me who's like that that comes up a lot and also why is it that dr morbius doesn't realize his id killed all those people when they first landed is it denial a defense mechanism also yeah, there's that weird there's that weird scene where Morbius says, I, I'm having this strange intuition that something's gonna come for you and, and destroy the ship. Right. Like what he's supposed to be a man of science and he's having weird dreamlike intuition states that he just doesn't question. He just says, Oh, I, I just have a feeling that something bad is going to happen to you. And dreams actually in Freudian psychology are a way the unconscious desires manifest themselves. Yep. I, uh, Morbius is asleep when the, the monster originally attacks as well. I, I had assumed that it directly came from his sleeping mind. Did anyone else? I had that feeling too. Yeah. 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 That was a, that's a good point. You know, kind of talking, like you said, Andrea, about uh, the, the manifestation of the desires of the id in dream, you know, mm-hmm. it's that, I mean, they, they kind of do it clumsily again, because um, there are certain Reasons. topics they can't talk about, you know, the Freudian psychology really deals with a lot of sexual topics and they weren't really able to discuss that in general in public, you know, but in particular in, in cinema at the time. But um, no, I think, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, they're trying to represent, stuff in uh, Freudian psychology, both textually and subtextually, the textually stuff being talked about the monsters from the id, 
But like, unless you know what the, the id is, where they, they kind of have to tell the audience, this is what the id is. But th that's also something that that is a theme that was picked up on by Gene Roddenberry for Star Trek. Like he very explicitly has said in the, you know, in, in creating the original series that the, the, the holy trinity, so to speak, of, of Kirk, Spock and McCoy were as ego, super ego and it, you know, with Kirk as the ego. <laughs> funny because we make like to make cracks about William Shatner being an ego test, but you Oops. know, uh, Kirk being the ego Spock being the super ego, that, which is the, what everybody aspires to be the perception that one has of oneself. And then the id being the basis desires, you know, and, and McCoy very much just always just like emotionally expressing himself. Blurts out whatever he feels like. Also like considering just the politics of the time that star trek is set in bones is a little bit uh a little bit racist Not yeah he's a bit dated he's an old yeah. country doctor <laughs> you know? he, he makes no he makes no bones about it uh, <laughs> yeah yeah you could see a lot of the attitudes maybe of the the chef if if the chef was a medic you could see him being a bones kind of you know, say it like I see it, rough and tumble kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. like a young Bones. <laughs> is that what the cook is doing throughout all of Forbidden Planet? <laughs> oh, he's the rough booze is for medicinal tumble. purposes. Oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> well, you know, Star Trek was originally uh, based on Westerns. And, you know, his McCoy is supposed to be that old Sawbones who's like takes a lug of whiskey before he saws off your leg. <laughs> kind I mean, of in doctor. the opener, in the opening scene of, of the cage, like literally the ship's doctor is, just shows up to the captain's room and pulls out a drink for the both of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm surprised uh, um, we only saw as much drinking as we did in the film. <laughs> Although drinking and excessive alcohol, that's banned by the code as well. Yep. What? Yep. yep. Did anyone else, just speaking of psychology uh, in the film... Like, like I mentioned earlier, the reason that this doesn't have the happy ending that The Tempest has is because of man's inability to uh, tame its own id and desires to master technology for an enlightened purpose. And I wonder a bit if this decision for this has a bit to do with the atomic age and the use of the nuclear bomb oh, in World War II, because there was still a lot of that like nuclear terror and that whole thought of what have we unleashed upon the world? No, you know, every, everybody, everybody who made mind. this film had seen the atom bomb go off 10 years before. Mm -hmm. So that's got to have been part of their thinking. I mean, the world went from a place where like war was one thing to all of a sudden we can destroy the entire planet. And, you know, even the thought of like, you know, Morbius not wanting to release all the technology that he's finding from the Krell because he's afraid of what he actually does. He's afraid of other people doing the repercussions of giving people this technology. He sees the damage it can do, not realizing that he has not mastered it himself to the point that he thinks and he unconsciously, literally unconsciously, releases a terror on everybody. The bigger question for me is if this brain machine he took made uh. his 
consciousness, his ego, really big, he's smart and everything, and his id, his monster tendencies. What about the superego? What about the morality of, you know, civilization? Why wasn't that equally large? Well, we had um, a bit of a discussion about this just before the show, and he talks about the in, the enlightened morality of these aliens, the more superior ethics, as if ethical ability is something that's on a scale that can be measured. Like you have your IQ measure and your ethics measure. And these aliens were so far ahead of us, their ethics were so far advanced. He kind of subscribes to their ethics now, not human ethics. So his superego isn't even thinking in human terms, I would say. He's thinking in these sort of galactic alien terms. Well, coming from a, a structural standpoint, you know, going and this is kind of also some of the stuff we discussed with Trash Shaman during the episode on the shout is that you've got these three ideas of superego, ego, and id, but you can also look at them structurally in the brain. You know, the the superego being the manifestation of the prefrontal cortex, which is downstream from the amygdala, but can be hijacked by the amygdala. That's your monster from your id, the, the lizard brain, the thing that's just like immediately go, you know satisfy these these base urges that need to be satisfied hunger safety sex and remember as well this is the, this is the 50s uh, massive technological advances had just been seen color televisions were appearing everywhere refrigerators cars every week it must have seemed like some new technological advancement was just emerging out of nowhere and there was a very real feeling that's prevalent in a lot of sci-fi at the time of we're letting genies out of bottles left right and center mm-hmm. the atomic I bomb was bomb. one of them It's, you know, we're constantly letting out these genies. How long until something happens that we can't undo? And how can we and should we put the genie back in the bottle? That's, I think, what happens later on with technology is is that, well, you know, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. It's there. It's out. Yeah, and that's the the Star Trek view, that the genie's out, the technology is here, and we're going to use it, and it will be good. Yeah. Right. Well, this was the era that it, that nuclear war was seen as inevitable. You know, this was the era of duck and cover. They were giving out public safety films on how to protect yourself from uh, fallout and radiation. You know, these these things, they were like, yeah, this we don't see this not happening because there's never been a technology that humans have created that they haven't then also used, which is still something that although this has been an issue at this point for 80, almost 80 years now, this is still a fear that we've at this point, the past 30 years, we've gotten comfortable because supposedly the United States has won the Cold War, but then we got complacent and comfortable with nuclear weapons. And then suddenly... Holy shit! Uh, now we're we're looking at this this potential war with Russia and having invaded the Ukraine. I mean, at this point, who knows when people will listen to this again? Maybe we'll all be listening to this from the bunkers that we've now built in our backyards again. But like the whole point. I hope being, we all have Wi-Fi signals so that you can download our podcast. Yeah, I mean, not to get too fatalist or doomer about it, but it, it you know it gave us all uh, our generation a very rude awakening to like, oh right, yes, this this technology still exists, and this is something that we need to treat. With utter caution. Um, well, here's and- a here's a question for you. In the fifties, people seeing this film heard Dr. Morbius say, "Man is not ready for this science. He's not ready. We can't give it to him." Were people looking at that, going, "Yeah, he's right. Morbius is entirely correct in his assessment," or were they thinking, "No, Morbius is being selfish. We should have everything." Making Morbius the smartest person who ever lived, and even he can't handle the technology. I think what they're going for is. 
Morbius is right about this. And the only way to keep it out of our hands is to destroy it all and let us all come to it in our own terms. But at the same time, Robbie gets off the planet there's some of the technology right there, and who knows what they're going to do with Robbie's parts. Well, Robbie so, wasn't built by the Krell. He was more of like a Krell-human hybrid. It was something that... Yeah, but it still has Krell technological DNA there, you know? You're suggesting a sort of Terminator 2 Skynet situation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it all links up, man. Isolation from human society. We know about that from the last two years. Is it possible Dr. Morbius and Altera are slightly crazy from isolation on this planet alone all these years? Don't well, see why not. I mean, definitely they're trying to make the point that Altera, if nothing else, right, she doesn't she doesn't understand quote unquote normal human interactions between men and women. From from our perspective, looking back on it and how dated and sexist it is, it just kind of seems more like a send-up almost of like, yeah, why do we have all these stupid patriarchal like arrangements? But back then, I think it, it was intended straight faced of like, oh, look at this. Look at this girl. She doesn't know that men can be horn dogs and, and stuff like that. Like she totally. Yeah, no, she's completely isolated. And also oh, just, my father calls me ignorant, you know. Yeah. I mean, also just and rigid gender roles as well, because it's just very much confined mm-hmm. within the very 1950s. You don't know what you're thinking, women. Something like that. <laughs> but ironically, her dad doesn't tell her cover up or watch out for these guys he's yep yep yep. i love your clothes daughter (laughs) he's not the one telling her what to do yeah yeah there's some definite inconsistencies there i'm not sure what to make of that might also be a subtle a subtle nod to to freudian psychology with regard to the oedipal or electra complex oh my miss oh my god always there's definitely some of that going I mean, not, I don't mean to be rude, but I'm just making a point that that was a, that was a big chunk of Freudian psychology. And if they're oh, yeah. making both textual and subtextual nods to it, that would be something that they could not avoid. Well, just, yeah, that's true. Well, her, I mean, her interactions so, with her father were weird. They just were. Well, I mean, if you go full circle on this, right, in The Tempest, Caliban, right, before the action even starts, Caliban mm-hmm. has been like chained up and buried in the earth because he attempted to rape Prospero's daughter. Mm-hmm. Now, in True. Forbidden Planet, Caliban is pro- uh, uh, is Prospero, meaning Morbius's id monster, meaning it's what he really wants to do. Oh, so yeah, you follow oh, that full Matt. circle, and you wind up right in your Oedipus. Yep. <laughs> Boom! Hits you right in the Oedipus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah. So there is that. Um, I don't know if that was intentional or not. That seems like maybe more thought than the script writers did. It's probably a consequence of just the structure being set up that the implications themselves set in. Yeah. Possibly they didn't understand the Shakespeare as well as they thought they did. Oh, dear. As not as well as you do, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know. (laughs) Not everyone's British. I don't think it's... I don't think it's out of re- out of reason to assume that the scriptwriters were doing this subtextually. I mean, they were very well-read people, um, mm-hmm. particularly in this era. There was I'm just making the point about that. Like there, there's stuff they could say, there's stuff they couldn't say, and there's stuff that they probably wouldn't say for for taste reasons, but they would want to hint at. 
you're going to have multiple layers of audiences. You know, you're going to have the, the intellectual crowd who are going to get it. You're going to do what we're doing and analyze the Jesus out of it. And there's other people going to be like, hey, hell, check out that robot and M ray guns. They sure were cool, weren't they? <laughs> I honestly yeah. think yeah, right. that this, I honestly think that this is the most and deepest thought ever given to the Oh, you, no, no, no. <laughs> no, 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 many, many of academic paper has been written on this movie. I, yeah. yeah, I actually read through a couple. Nice. <laughs> yeah, no, this was one of the subjects of like my, my, one of my film classes. Uh, but uh, anyway, did anyone else notice when Robbie broke the fourth wall? No, when was this? Uh, I think it was when he was uh, talking to the cook. What was it, Andy? Do you oh, remember the, the, the oil job reference? Oh <laughs> my god! Oh my god! Yeah, right? he, yeah. He like offers to give him an oil job for the whiskey, and Robbie like turns halfway to the screen, like "Hello." Oh yeah, no, that was that was definitely them getting past the haze coat. I'm sorry, <laughs> madam. I was just giving myself an oil job behind the screen. Like, like, uh, <laughs> like whoa, now, Robbie. <laughs> Hello, <please>. sailor. <laughs> Yeah, but the oil job that you know, everybody looks at one another. Uh huh. <laughs> right. An oil okay. job, huh? Right. <laughs> Those rubber mitts of yours. <laughs> Somehow I feel like this violates uh, Isaac Asimov's uh, code of robotics. Uh, <laughs> Violate is the correct word. I was going to say if it's consensual. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he's artificial. Is, is it possible for him to give consent? He's not technically alive. Uh, I, do you have to ask consent? Of, time. I was going to say, do you have to ask your toaster if you would for consent to put your bread in If it? your toaster was an <laughs> atomic super robot with death rays, you'd ask. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. They say Robbie's just a tool. Oh. oh my god my father actually has a uh, a robbie the robot model and he did have interchangeable mitts like you could change the mitts for a little set of claws and who knows what other attachments you might have for those oh things. boy like data once said i am fully functional oh. <laughs> but yeah judgment. i don't know andrea andre any other any other thoughts on this before we move to judgment no i'm ready okay right. let us judge this film now it is time for the judgment. Inquisitor Ethan, please present your judgment. I judge this film guilty. Uh, are we I not? judge it guilty. Guilty <laughs> of having called uh, Cinemania and for having birthed the terror that is Star Trek and driven thousands, nay, millions, uh, mad with desire for science fiction and birthed uh, thousands of other episodes of things. We have conventions happening around the planet with people dressing up as these these fools and as if they're going to visit space ridiculous i uh, don't crimes oh. alone scrutinizer zachariah what is your judgment as beautiful as this film is visually i have to give this movie an entire flying saucer full of problematic grandpas guilty verifier andy what is your judgment well, I was going to let this one go. I thought it was just a harmless piece of hokum. But when I watched it again, I realized there's way more to this film than I ever believed. There's a lot of deep themes and deep stuff going on, and we can't be having that. It's definitely guilty. Profligator Daniel, what is your judgment? I got to say, for, for all the things that Brother Ethan said, 
for the film that birthed a thousand nerds, uh, this <laughs> film is guilty. And Repositor Andre, what is your judgment? For the heinous crime of spawning Star Trek, creating the original series, thus spawning the next generation, thus raising me on the next generation, and thus granting me an unhealthy obsession with Commander Riker, I deem this film guilty. <laughs> and you, Professor Andrea, what is your judgment? For inappropriate use of the Hayes Code to make an extremely creepy and sexual movie that's not supposed to be sexual, I'd make this film guilty. Definitely. <laughs> Excellent. Yes, I, I concur. Many charges one could bring against this, this, this crime of cinema, this filmic felony, if you will. Uh, sorry to surprise you once again, but uh, we, we can't uh, deconvene our conclave because, uh, once again, I've invited uh, a special guest. I'll break out the guest fezzes. Ah, special guest tassels. Has everybody heard of Tim Russ? Oh, I've yes. Yeah, yeah. The yes. Tim Russ. Yeah, the Tim Russ of uh, speaking of Star Trek. And with that, we go to recess. <coughs> Uh, we're, Does we're somebody need a, a cough sweet again? Uh, uh, I'm okay. Throwing <laughs> my book at Methuselah now. Uh. <laughs> and remember, folks, if you liked that episode, past is just prologue. What? I hate you so much right now. <laughs> <laughs> that episode of the Cinemania Society featured Andre Luke Martinez, Andy Slack, Ethan Ireland, Zachariah Burks, Daniel Scribner, and Andrea Palladino. Produced by Ethan Ireland and Andy Slack. Mixing, mastering, and sound design by Ethan Ireland. Graphic design by Andy Slack. Music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Visit our website at thecinemaniasociety.podbean.com and check out our social media feeds. We're on Twitter at TCS underscore Cinemania. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review wherever you find us, mention us on social media, or find us on Ko-Fi to throw us a few bones. We love to make fun stuff for folks, but it isn't free. Anything and everything helps. Coming soon, the Cinemania Society will be creating pieces of video media, short films, and the like. So stay tuned, Cinemaniacs. The Cinemania Society is a production of the Cinemania Society, LLC.